in about the uh, middle of the second century the churches of Smyrna were overseen by a bishop and that bishop's name was Polycarp perhaps you've heard of him he actually was a disciple of the apostle John this early church in Smyrna was hated by the society and the government and the Roman Empire for a number of reasons the main reason why this church was despised by the Roman Empire was their refusal to sacrifice to the Roman gods uh, specifically to the uh, the emperor who was seen as divine what is most known or at least certainly what is most famously recorded about this bishop Polycarp was his death probably around 160 AD Polycarp was uh, a man who had heard he would preach the gospel and would not sacrifice to the Roman gods he would not compromise with this religion and he had a vision at some point at a certain point he realized that he was going to be um, arrested and taken into to custody at first he ran or he hid the, uh, under the, uh, the, the urging of the people of the church and of his friends said you need to hide um, he did go out to a house on the outskirts of town where he, uh, he, he fled for a bit of time but he was quickly found there and the Roman authorities came in to seize him to take him out to uh, be tried and certainly executed as he was being taken under arrest, first of all, his, um, the people who were going to arrest him couldn't quite understand what they were, why this 86-year-old man was such a threat to the Roman Empire. But as they came into the house, he welcomed them, gave them food, gave them water, and blessed them, and then asked, can I have an hour to pray before you take me? They said, certainly this man is no threat, certainly you can you can pray for an hour the re reports are that he was so filled with the spirit of God that he prayed for three hours as his guardians stood and awaited for him but eventually they took him and as he was uh, being brought into the arena where he would be tried and um, perhaps executed a voice came from heaven that said to him Polycarp play the man And as he stood in the arena, the proconsul asked Polycarp, said, he said to Polycarp, have respect for your old age and swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, down with the atheists. You have to remember, Christians were considered atheists at the time. And he said, said just repent of your and recant your love for Christ and say down with the atheists and Polycarp turned and pointed towards the crowd and said down with the atheists the proconsul urged him swear reproach Christ and I will set you free 
Polycarp responded, eight, six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The pro-capital said, I have wild animals here. I will throw them to you if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, the proconsul said, I'll have you burned. Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on what you will. <laughs> when it was all said and done, they brought Polycarp to the place where he was going to be bind, and they went to fasten him and said, you don't need to fasten me. I'll just pray here, y'all stand here, and I'll take the flames. Eyewitnesses said that as the fire went up, and the fire consumed his body, instead of burning flesh, it smelled like, like bread being baked. In his final prayer, he looked up to heaven and said, Oh Lord God Almighty, Father, of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creatures, and all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. There were no numerous martyrs in Smyrna. History tells us that he was actually the 12th martyr. We hear of a man by the name of Germanicus who was killed in Smyrna. Smyrna was known to be a place where Christians would be killed for their faith. So as we come this day to our message in Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11, as Jesus writes a letter to this church some 60, 70 years prior to Polycarp's martyrdom, we see also this little church in Smyrna under attack from the Roman Empire. The city of Smyrna itself, we should probably learn a little bit about the city of Smyrna. It was actually a beautiful city. It was sometimes regarded as the pride of Asia. It, was, it had actually, there was in Smyrna a hill behind it, and because of the temples on it, sometimes it was called the crown of Smyrna, and even sometimes that little hill was known as the crown of life. Because as you approached it, because of the temples, it appeared or had the appearance of a crown. It was a beautiful city, and it had a long history of loyalty to Rome. In 195 BC, a temple was built to the goddess of Rome. 
And in 29 AD, um, after many cities put in and sought to be awarded permission to build a temple to the uh, Emperor Tiberius, Smyrna was awarded the honor of building that temple to Tiberius Caesar. And boasted of being the first to promote the worship of Caesar. It was well known for a grove of trees whose bark produced myrrh. Hence we get the name Smyrna. We see the word myrrh in there. We know from early accounts that Smyrna was also known for Jewish antagonism towards Christians. Actually not just Smyrna, but certainly um, Smyrna was known for that. You see, you need to remember that Judaism in the Roman Empire was was a protected religion that basically Rome would put up with the Jewish religion and kind of just leave them to do their own thing. Well, Christianity comes along, and for a time, Christianity was kind of seen as a sect of Judaism, and in some places, um, Judaism was actually, or sorry, Christianity was protected under the umbrella of Judaism, but Jews considered the worship of Jesus a a condemned carpenter to be idolatry and so they would say Christianity and us have nothing to do with one another and they would often go to the Roman government and say listen the Christians and us we have nothing to do with one another and they would kind of rat out the Christians as a way to get rid of the Christians They were diligent to separate themselves from Christianity and they would encourage Rome to crack down on this religion. And we see evidence of this in Scripture. We see in Acts chapter 13, 50, Acts chapter 14, 25, 14, 19, 17, 5, we see where um, Christianity was not to be protected. The church of Smyrna, quite interestingly, nobody knows exactly when it was founded, but some would say that it may have been founded very early on. Because if you go back to Acts chapter 2 and Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost there, there were people from that area. Not, I don't know that it mentioned Smyrna exactly, but from right around that area, it is not at all beyond conception that these people went back into this area and planted a church in the area. Otherwise, most people would think that somewhere in Paul's journeys, um, or as Christianity began to spread north and west, that the church at Smyrna was planted. So that's just some background. Let's go ahead and let's read our text today. And... uh, And then look at it a little more closely. Verse 8, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and who has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. 
And so Jesus comes and identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. That is, the first and the last. This has echoes to us of Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, where we read, Who has performed an accomplishment? Speaking of God, who has performed an accomplishment? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. We also see in Isaiah chapter 44, 6, God also saying this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God beside me. And then in Isaiah chapter 48, 12, we again read, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I call. I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. And here Jesus comes and reveals Himself to the church of Smyrna as the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so, as the Eternal's God spoke authoritatively to the people of Israel, so Jesus now speaks authoritatively to His church. Apart from Him, there is no God. He is the crucified One. But He did not... His existence did not cease with His crucifixion and death, but He has risen. And He has come to life. And that He is the Eternal God, the beginning and the end. And that Jesus appeared in His humiliation... That is, He put on flesh, He dwelt among us, that He did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but took on the form of a bondservant, and gave Himself even to death, even death on the cross, at the hands of sinful men. It is this crucified one, this one who was humili- who came in humiliation and weakness and, and limitations, and is now the exalted King of Kings. It is this one who stands in the midst of the satanic persecution. It is this one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who speaks to this church in Smyrna. And the people in Smyrna are going to need to know this valuable truth. They're going to need to know who is the Lord to whom they serve. Who is this King? What is the King that we are serving? What is He all about? Jesus began, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he writes to this church. And he writes basically about a fourfold suffering. It's interesting to note that um, of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation 2 are not rebuked. And Smyrna is one of them that is not rebuked. Otherwise, you know the pattern, we've kind of discussed it. Jesus writes a letter and he says, I know your good deeds and you've done all of these good things, but I have this against you. In Smyrna, there is no I have this against you. This suffering church stands before Christ without any rebuke and without any condemnation, but encouragement. And they face basically a fourfold suffering. And the first suffering that they go undergo is, I know your tribulation and your poverty. This prompts us to ask the question, why would a church, or why would people in a very prosperous 
towns such as Smyrna, and it was a prosperous city, why would somebody living in such a prosperous city be impoverished? Was it because they were lazy and just refused to go to work? Was it because, as Paul accuses in Thessalonica, people are saying, well, the Lord's returning, so I don't need to do anything? Was it because they had no trade or skill? Was it because they were ignorant? The reason these people in Smyrna, these saints in Smyrna, were impoverished was very simple. They would not compromise with cultural religion. They would not compromise with the cult of Rome. They were unwilling to make peace with emperor worship and therefore would suffer economically because here's how it worked. If you were, to, if you were a bricklayer and you were to lay bricks, you would have been part of basically a trade guild, a union. And in order to participate in these activities, as you would enter into the meeting hall, you would take a pinch of incense and throw it into the fire and basically say, Caesar is Lord. Even if you didn't say it with your mouth, by taking that pinch of incense and throwing it into the little fire as you enter, you didn't even have to mean it. You just had to do it. To not do it would basically mean you have no job. You may be the best bricklayer in the world. But if you will not take that pinch of incense and throw it in the fire, signifying Caesar is Lord, you will not work. Not only that, but Christians, we will see, um, were accused of a variety of different things and would not have been hired. This reminds me, of course, of the very um, early days of the Third Reich when, you know, Hitler banned doing business with Jewish businesses. You just can't do business with them. And the brown shirts would stand outside of the doors of a Jewish business and would basically intimidate you. At this point, um, the Jews were not being persecuted outrightly. It was coming quickly, but the brown shirts would stand outside the business and make sure that you didn't go in. Forcing, of course, then Jewish businesses to close. And in the case of Smyrna, forcing Christian businesses to struggle and to suffer. <coughs> they were excluded from the trade guilds. We should note that whenever believers declare that Jesus alone is Lord in places such as Smyrna, there will be financial ramifications. First area of suffering, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. And then he says, but you are rich. One may be both poor and rich at the same time, but perhaps not in the same way. And we read in James chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to him to those who love him? And then of course we read in Matthew chapter six, verse nine, we 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 see Jesus I'm sorry, six nineteen through thirty-four, where we see Jesus say, Don't store up your treasures. Um, in places where moth and rust can destroy them, 
and thieves break in and steal them. But rather, attain for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth can, can destroy them and thieves cannot steal them. You can be both poor and rich at the same time, though perhaps not in the same way. And, G, and even Peter writes, he says, we have riches. These aren't riches that, that are perishable, but imperishable, purchased with the very precious blood of Jesus our Lord. So Jesus tells the people of the church of Smyrna, you are poor, you've got nothing. Whatever you have has been taken away from you and you probably don't have a lot of job prospects because you refuse to compromise with pagan religion. But you are rich. And there will be no thief and no moth and no corrosive agent that can take away what you've stored up. Which should cause us to ask ourselves how do we measure real wealth? By what means do we say a person is wealthy? By what means do we say that a person is poor? Certainly in this world there are those who are financially bursting at the seams and are destitute and have nothing. And one of these days everything they have will be gone. And people will fight for immortality by establishing Structures and buildings with their names on them so they will be remembered long after, after they're gone but those buildings fade away and nature takes its course and they become old buildings and they fall down and they are destroyed they away for something newer and bigger and grander. But those who have treasure in heaven there is not a power on earth or a power in hell that can take away the riches that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Jesus is, is encouraging his people, he's saying, man, you're poor, I know that. But stay strong and do not, do not return, do not compromise. This was the issue in the book of Hebrews. You remember the book of Hebrews is written to uh, Christians who are thinking about returning back to Judaism. And one of the reasons they're thinking about going back to Judaism is because Judaism was a protected religion. If you went there, you wouldn't suffer. The book of Hebrews writes, those who have been had your properties taken, though you haven't really given, you haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood, but you have had your properties taken, and the author of Hebrews is saying, man, keep, stay on this course, continue to follow Christ, don't go back. Yes, back in Judaism you will be protected. You will probably be able to get your job back. Yes, all of these things will happen. However, you will sacrifice the one thing of eternal value, and that is Christ your Lord. Don't go back. And Jesus is encouraging his church here in Smyrna. Stay strong. They are also slandered. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jews were actively reporting to Christian authorities, to Christ, reporting Christians to authorities, and basically saying these guys are not Jews and making all sorts of lies about the believers. We should know that slander of Christians is nothing new. First of all, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And you'll recall, of course, the, uh, the 
account in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, where Joshua the high priest is standing and, and ministering at the altar of the Lord, and the accuser is accusing him, and he has filthy garments. And I think actually the accuser is right, saying, look, he has filthy garments, and he does. And the accuser accuses. But what does the Lord say? The Lord rebuke you. Bring out a clean garment and put it on him. And dress him in a clean garment. Make him white. Make him pure as snow. And put a clean turban on his head. The turbans the priest wore. The priest wore a turban and there was a label on it that said, Holy to the Lord. And Zechariah yells out, and don't forget the turban. The Lord rebuke you. You accuser. I'll make him cleansed. I will make him right. I will make him holy. He is holy to me. We should not be surprised that Satan lies. Jesus himself is accused of insurrection. That is, of rebellion against the Roman government. He never rebelled against the Roman government, but they said he claimed to be a king. A king of the Jews, and that basically this was this was a sensitive subject to the, to the Romans. They did not want some other king rising up and threatening um, the peace of Rome. And so by this, they were put him to death. Many lives were brought about Jesus. But it was this lie of insurrection that prompted Rome to put him to death. Early believers were accused of atheism, as we saw in our account with Polycarp. They were accused of atheism because they did not believe in the Roman God. They believed in this invisible God. If you're to say, where is your God? It's like, well, he's invisible, and he lives up in heaven, and we don't know where that is. Well, they called him atheist because of this. They were accused of all sorts of sexual immorality, they were accused of incestual relationships with one another because they said, well, Christians call themselves brothers and sisters and they greet one another with a holy kiss and they meet in these secret meetings and we don't know what's going on in there. And so... They were accused of all sorts of things. We should not be surprised when we stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ and lies are told about us. Today we are called bigots and we are called all sorts of horrific things and it's going to get worse, I believe. And we should not be surprised one bit that we are slandered for the cause of Christ. Jesus says, I know the slander that you're facing. I was slandered. It says these Jews are after the synagogue of Satan. They have made peace with paganism and they are willing to turn over, follow, turn over followers of their Messiah to the pagans. Ethnically, they were Jews, but they rejected the covenant, which is by faith in Jesus, and now they coexist with those who despise everything the Abrahamic covenant stood for. Isn't that amazing? All of a sudden, now these. Jewish people who are aligning themselves with pagans who despise their very heritage and despise their very belief system, that they're willing to align themselves in order to have these 
believers in Smyrna arrested and put to death. But again, we should not be too surprised. John chapter 8, verse 44 tells us, You are, Jesus says this, the Jewish leaders. You are the father of the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what he does. Satan will appear to appear before you and say, Hello, I want you to understand he's lying to you. I don't know what that means, but he's lying. Because that's what he does. So, we see that this was a group of people who were facing tribulation and poverty. And they were blasphemed by those who claimed to love God, but were actually the synagogue of Satan. And they proved themselves to be the synagogue of Satan by putting to death those who followed the, the, the Jewish Messiah, the promised Messiah, way back in Genesis 3.15, the one who followed that seed. They were lied about and put to death, demonstrating that they are of their father, the devil. Do not fear, Jesus says, for what you are about to suffer, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Here Jesus comes along and says, Do not fear. But you are about to suffer. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. You need to understand that um, prison in the Roman system was quite different from prison in the United States system. Basically, if you were in prison in a in the Roman system, you were basically awaiting trial where more likely than not you would receive a death sentence. So if you were in prison, it was really not looking well for you. You weren't just there for a few days or a few years and then you'd get out and become a productive member of society. You would either be, be determined to be innocent and you'd be set free or you'd be guilty and you'd be killed. So if you're in prison, this is not looking too good for you. And we learn that the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Don't fear. And you're going to be cast into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. A lot of questions about what does this mean by ten days? Is that literal and figurative? What does it mean? I, I take it to me, my understanding. There are a lot of ideas that have been put forth. I don't think it's a literal ten days. I guess it could be. Uh, you're going to be in prison for 10 days and then let out and then everything's over and done but I would say that it's two ideas that I think carry weight and the first one is that it is a specific amount of time it has an end date it's a relatively short period of time and it, but it's a very specific duration in other words the Lord is in control over the duration but I think there's another idea that is of great value here and remember much of what we do to interpret the book of Revelation is that we look to the Old Testament. The Old Testament will help us greatly in understanding the book of Revelation. We do not understand the book of Revelation by current events. Please don't do that. It just wasn't written that way. The 
But it is a very Old Testament book. So when you see an earthquake somewhere, don't go to the book of Revelation saying, oh, I wonder what this is. Or when you see Russian troops invading the Ukraine, don't go to the book of Revelation. It's a very Old Testament book. And I think we find a clue, because you recall Daniel and his friends were tested for ten days. And what were they tested with? To compromise with pagan religion. And they were told, listen, we want you to eat the king's food which has been sacrificed to idols. Because all the food was sacrificed to idols. And they said, we won't do that. We want to eat just vegetables. And the guard, you know, Carl said, man, I, listen, I'm, in, I'm responsible for you. And if you don't gain weight, if you're not, you know, bright and cheery and look healthy and all of that, man, my, my job and my head are on the line. I don't want this. And he said, basically, here's what we'll do. And Daniel pleaded with him and, and said, feed us vegetables for ten days. Not the rich food of the king. Feed us vegetables for ten days, and at the end of ten days, we are not in superior condition to the others around us, then withdraw that, that food. And at the end of the ten days, of course, they were um, strong and bright and uh, sharp, and they stood head, head and shoulders above the others who had the king's food. So I think that there is much weight to this idea that, and, and we, we've learned through some Jewish writings that the Jewish people would hold very strongly to this idea that this um, ten days was a, uh, or this event in Daniel talked much about the idea of not synthesizing our beliefs with, with paganism. We will not compromise with the pagan. We will not blend the truth with paganism. It became a model for those who are willing to face the wrath of the state rather than worship what is false. The state can kill me, but I will not worship what is false. I think that's a, a very compelling thought. It's going to put you into, in, into prison for ten days, basically drawing our minds back to the children, um, to Daniel and his friends, who would not compromise and would not eat the king's food, or in the days that we are looking at, they would not take a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. We will not compromise. We would rather face the wrath of the state than compromise Jesus Christ. And if he throws us in prison, then he throws us in prison. That's where we'll go. And if we go into the arena with the wild beasts, as Polycarp did and so many others, so we will go. You'll notice that the, Jesus says, Behold, it is the devil about to cast you into prison. so that you will be tested. I want you to understand this, this suffering from imprisonment came from Satan, but it was used by God for their testing. Satan is not in control of this, and I think that's the compelling idea of ten days. God is in control of the duration of your suffering. 
not Satan. He has no authority here. I'm in control. And I will use it for my purposes and for my glory and for your strengthening and for your purifying so that you would be my people. This is all about, it has nothing to do with the authority and power of Satan. It has everything to do with the glory and power and purifying perfection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All of these things are in God's hand. And then finally, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here's what's interesting. Jesus does not intervene. I know when we think when we're in a hard place, we think, oh, well, somehow God is compelled or God is required to intervene. Now, God does intervene. I think Peter in the prison cell, remember, when he probably would have died, probably would have been sentenced to death afterwards, and let God brace him out of prison. Paul was in prison, and there was this earthquake, and God gets him out of prison. We see that over and over through the scriptures. But we also see people like Stephen who are stoned to death. And we see people in the church of Smyrna who are not going to get out of prison, but they are going to die there. We're going to see people like Polycarp say, bring it on. Wild animals, that's all you got? Are you joking me? That's all you can do? A fire that burns for an hour? <laughs> yeah, compared to a fire that burns for eternity? Light it up! <laughs> This was a short imprisonment that would be followed by eternal life. Just like Polycarp thought. A fire that burns for an hour is nothing compared to a fire that burns for eternity. And so those who endure this short ten day persecution are put to death by the beast, but they are rewarded by coming to life and being alive forever with Christ. Just like Jesus, I was dead for three days, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is a great picture. Jesus says, I am the living one. Behold, I was dead, but I have come back to life. And you may die in your prison cell and in the arena, but behold, you are united with me, and you will come back to life, and you will reign with me forever. Go for the ten days. It's worth it. The ten days is nothing. Because eternal life is awaiting you. You smurns. Be faithful. I am the one who has the keys. We saw him. He's the one who has the keys of death and hell. What is Caesar going to do to you? What can he do to you? Stand strong. As Polycarp heard the vision or heard the voice, act the man. Stand up. Be bold. Go forward. Be faithful to Christ and do not compromise with paganism. And you will be given the crown of life. You'll recall, there's such a, an amazing play on words here, because you'll recall that the hill behind Smyrna was called the crown of life. A place of false temples and false worship. And Jesus says, that's not the crown of life. You're going to get a crown of life, the real crown of life. The one that calls, that says that you have eternal life in me. I'll give you the crown of life. This also has certainly uh, allusions to the Roman games, sporting events, where the one who overcame, the victor, was given a crown. And here Jesus says, man, you are the victor. Ten days, and you're the victor. 
And I will give you a crown of life. Why? Because I'm the, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I am the living one. Finally, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So we close our message out today. We learn that the one who conquers will not be touched by the second death. This is eternal death. This is death forever. Suffering in the torments of hell. The one who overcomes, the victor, will not be touched by that. This is the promise from the living one who was and is and who is to come. The one who was dead and is now alive, who has the keys of death and hell. No matter what Satan may do, whether it be poverty, slander, death, he does not win. He cannot win because he's not in control. It is Jesus, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, who is in control. We, you and I, we may lose material goods, but we are beyond wealthy because we have riches that cannot be taken away from us. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not the state, not our government. Jesus is Lord. If our lives are given, we will gain them forever. The one who loses his life for my sake will find it. That came from Jesus, our Lord. Father, we come to you and we thank you and praise you, Lord. I pray that you would spare us from any of these, any suffering and temptation and trial and slander. I pray that you would spare us. But I pray, Father God, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. We would not be ashamed to be slandered. We would not be ashamed, Lord God, of being called by your name. In fact, we would consider it an honor and a privilege to be called by your name in whatever circumstance. I pray, Father God, that you would fill us with the Spirit so that no matter what comes our way, no matter what comes our way, whether peace or or trial, whether freedom or imprisonment, regardless of what comes our way, we will glorify you and honor you and love you above all things. And Lord, remember, it's just ten days. It's just a fire that burns for an hour. That you are the living one, and you are alive forevermore, and we are united with you, and you will raise us up and cause us to dwell with you forever and ever. Lord, you did not rebuke the Smyrna church. We pray, Lord God, the church on Randall place, that we could follow after this, if need be, and there would be nothing to rebuke us over, that we would stand strong for you, no matter the cost, for Christ's sake. Amen.